Well, today we are continuing our teaching series that we're calling Reconstructing Faith. Five shifts, five changes for a more resilient life. And this conversation uh, is kind of aimed for those of us who are either new to church or are feeling like we're kind of through with church. Uh, some of the things that we have learned or come, grown up with or come accustomed to or just have heard about what it means to be a follower of Jesus that uh, in, in many ways are worth a conversation to clarify and pull apart and make clear sense out of. Uh, and so we think that uh, as a part of this community, uh, the, part of the family of churches that we are a part of, that we actually have something helpful to offer to the conversation, something uh, that is old but feels relatively new and refreshing and, and revitalizing that we can contribute to the conversation uh, to bring clarity and transformation. And these are things that I'm, I'm particularly excited about. Uh, but it's, it's a bit like uh, I had some friends who a, a few years ago purchased an older home. And this home had inside of it what many people might consider to be a, a, a beautiful shag carpet. <laughs> it's unfortunate for those people that they're, that they're just wrong. <laughs> but we're so glad you're here. And, and kind of by accident, they discovered that underneath this shag carpet, which was kind of the thing to have for a little while and then very clearly is not the thing to have, underneath it was this, this gorgeous, pristine, and almost perfectly preserved hardwood floor. And so they ripped that shag carpet out and it absolutely transformed the, the entire experience of this home. And so my hope is that we're ripping out the spiritual shag carpet, if you will. Last week, uh, Tim Gettert kicked us off with the first shift, that uh, we have a different way of reading Scripture, that we as Jesus people approach the scriptures, the library of scriptures that we call the Bible, through the lens of Jesus, that the entire story of the scriptures is in fact a story that leads us and points us like John the Baptist to Jesus himself, and that all scripture is properly made sense in and through Jesus. And today, the second shift that we're going to explore is a bigger gospel, a bigger gospel. And so I want to start by looking at something really compelling from uh, Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> I know, a strange place to begin. But Ulysses S. Grant was uh, arguably the most fearsome general in the history of the Civil War. And uh, as, as he fought for the, the Union armies, the, the Northern armies, who were seeking to uh, abolish the sin of slavery. 
uh, that there are numerous, like lots more than one story of General Grant's army marching into a, uh, a Confederate regiment, and before the battle even began, they would raise the white flag because his reputation preceded him. And that they knew that the sort of winds of history were blowing at his back and, and that their resistance, in other words, was futile. And so they would just raise the flag. But there's one story in particular that I find absolutely captivating. General Grant and his army approach a Confederate fort in Tennessee. And they hear that General Grant is there, and they're like, oh boy, it's over. So not only do they run up the white the flag, the Confederate army all walk out of this fort, take off their uniforms, and switch sides. They're like, we're with this guy now. <laughs> Can you imagine that? It's mind-boggling. They completely switch sides. The presence of this figure and his power transformed their allegiance, what they were fighting for, whose team they were on. And I bet at this point you are thinking, what on earth does this story have to do with the gospel, the good news of going to heaven? What on earth are you talking about? What is the connection? What is the correlation? And I want to suggest this morning that, that precisely because we do not clearly see the connection between this story and its implications for the gospel is that we don't properly understand the gospel. That we have malformed gospels. The way that we understand who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do is bigger and more expansive than the little bit of truth that is part of the larger story, but gets out of order when we make it the whole picture. Uh, biblical scholar Scott McKnight puts it like this. A rediscovery of the gospel, which is what I'm hoping that we are part of this larger movement of doing, is urgent because the gospel that many accepted, that many believe, many preach and teach, and many have inscribed into official church statements is deconstructing the church. It's pulling us apart. It's expanding the back door and making it far easier to leave because we miss understand. Because it's narrowly concerned with, with the salvation associated with personal forgiveness. Many are sitting in pews every Sunday, all too comfortable, because we are confident that the gospel means we are saved or are justified or are going to heaven when we die. This all-too-comfortable feeling stems from a deficient understanding of the gospel in the Bible, Yet millions have accepted such ideas as the full gospel truth and enshrined them in gospel tracts, gospel sermons, and evangelistic methods. They have been further institutionalized by worship services that speak about the saving benefits of Jesus' death, but little else. But, 
a gospel that foregrounds personal forgiveness is not the gospel of Jesus. It's not the gospel of Peter. It's not the gospel of Paul. And it is not the gospel of anyone else in the New Testament. Now, before you get up and leave, before you start composing that email in your mind, let's embrace this tension here. Let's be open, curious, and consider the fact that maybe if this is getting us a little bit uncomfortable, that this is precisely the sort of ethos that Jesus created in proclaiming and announcing his gospel and the way that the people who thought they understood probably felt. And so then, what is the gospel? What is the good news of the kingdom of the heavens that Jesus embodies and announces and proclaims and enacts? What is the gospel? And to answer this question, we're going to pick up from where Tim left off last week in Luke's biography of Jesus' life, Luke, Luke chapter 24. And if you were here last week, you'll remember, and if not, just a quick refresher, that this is after Jesus' crucifixion. Three days later, he was dead and was raised to new life, hashtag Easter Sunday. And then he appeared to two disciples walking away from Jerusalem, He was incognito. They didn't recognize him. He explains the scriptures, how they all point to him. And then they invite Jesus into a meal. At this meal, they break the bread, and immediately their eyes are open. They recognize it's Jesus, and he disappears. And then they run back to Jerusalem, where the other uh, 11 of Jesus' followers are all huddled together. And this is where we pick up. While they were still talking about this, like, how, whoa, that's crazy, that's, what is this thing? Jesus himself, <laughs> Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you, which is hilarious. <laughs> if, if, if you think about it, that all of them are huddled together in fear, and Jesus just appears and is like, hey, 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 <laughs> peace, it's all good. They were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. Happy Halloween. (laughs) Continuing on a few verses ahead, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures And he told them, this is what is written. This is the point. This is the plot line. This is the TLDR of the scriptures. What is it about? What is the gospel? What is the good news story that God is writing in your life and mine and throughout the world? Is this, that the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now let's stop here and zero in on this word, the Messiah. 
because if you've grown up around the church, this is one of those things that kind of gets inserted into that category of Christianese, and we think we know what this word means or implies when, when really it's far broader than that. The Messiah means the anointed one. It was this figure, sort of a royal priest, is the idea in this cultural context and imagination that was, had oil dripped on their head that covered their body. And it was a sign that they were selected out, chosen for a particular purpose. And whenever I think about this, my mind immediately goes to uh, the Sports Illustrated cover issue of LeBron James, when as a junior in high school, he was dubbed the chosen one. The one who would bring renewal to the entire NBA who was struggling to figure out its way after Michael Jordan. What are we going to do next? How are we going to do this? And this 16-year-old was dubbed the chosen one and turned out for all intents and purposes, they weren't wrong. But that was for a particular purpose. The anointed one, the Messiah, was the figure, the long-promised, long-awaited figure that we meet on page two of the Bible. After God creates the earth and establishes his cooperative friends, Adam and Eve, in the garden to trust him for their protection and provision, and to allow God to define for them what is good and what is not good. And they decide, through the deception of God's enemy, to step away from this invitation to the fullness of life in partnership with God. They fall away from this grace. And God, after discovering this heartbreak. That is the source and substance of every bit of brokenness that you have endured or promoted in your life. That God says, here is what is going to happen as a result, and here is a promise that I'm going to make. And so God names this sort of reality for this serpent, this deceiver, And in Genesis 3, we read that God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And then he says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And the spirit of Jesus and the authors of scriptures want you to ask the question, well, who is he? Who is he? Well, is it the offspring of Adam and Eve? So that would be Cain and Abel. Will will one of them be the snake crusher? No. And the entire plot line of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is one figure after another, after another. Will this be the one? Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets. Who will be the snake crusher? Who will be the chosen one? 
the Messiah, the one who will reverse the curse and usher in the reign of God's peace, God's shalom, God's fullness, all the goodness and beauty and truth that was intended for human life that always eludes our grip and our grasp. Who is going to bring in that reality into our lives and into the world? Who will it be? And Jesus comes on the scene and says, it's me. I am the chosen one. I am the Messiah. And there were all sorts of these figures throughout time and history, and all of them were not the one. All of them participated in and ended in death. And so in these first few days after Jesus was crucified, the natural implication that his followers were thinking is, oh, oh my gosh, we were so wrong. Even after everything they had seen him do, the, the healings, the raising of the dead, the, the, the proximity and love for those on the margins, all of that, what, what have we just done? And so then, Jesus, raised from the dead, shows up in their midst, and I had to cut this verse, but I'm going to say it anyways, and he says, hey, 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 you think I'm a ghost? Watch this. Watch this. Look at my hands and my feet. Now, why does that matter? He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Jesus' crucifixion meant that he had snake-bite scars on his feet, that sin and death and evil, God's ultimate rivals and enemies, the thing that God does not want for any human life or the world or the cosmos on the whole, that took on Jesus and struck his body to the point of death. But because Jesus was stronger than death, after three days, he was raised to newness of life, therefore verifying his claim to be the Messiah. He is more powerful than even death itself. And so this begins to reorient their whole way of understanding things and what the Messiah was going to do, what the resurrection of Jesus means is that there is a kingdom, that Jesus is the Messiah, not just of personal life, although that's included, but of a realm, of a kingdom, a kingdom where God's will and God's way has sway and wins the day, that there is a Space in time and in matter where God's love is infiltrating the world, human life and human culture. And Jesus is proclaiming in his life the very embodiment of this kingdom. That there is a new sheriff in town. In the resurrected Jesus, it's like General Grant showing up and people being like, ho, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, this, this guy, this guy 
is more powerful than anything I can even imagine. But the thing about the power that this Messiah wields is not the power of violence. It's the power of love that endures even through violence and suffering and death and expands to the whole world. And this matters, as N.T. Wright helps us understand, because it's important for us to, to make this distinction. You see, Jesus was not offering a teaching that could be compared with that of other teachers, though his teaching as it stands is truly remarkable, the greatest teacher ever to live. He was not offering a moral example, though if we want such a thing, he remains outstanding. He was claiming to be someone through which the world would be healed, transformed, rescued, and renewed. He continues on, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and as a result, therefore, what happens next is that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now, when it comes to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, it's easy to squeeze these into a category of just personal shortcomings or moral slip-ups that somehow in and through relationship with Jesus, he says, hey, I'm human too, I get it, it's all good. You're forgiven. That's included, but it's not the whole thing. And it's Repentance and the forgiveness of sins is an announcement that there is a new way of being human in the world that looks like Jesus and that you have a way by being a student of this person, by being in Jesus' presence day in and day out to transform your life after by the grace that he gives you in and through his presence, transforming your everyday ordinary life to live more like him in the world and to participate in what Jesus is doing in the world through a kingdom, through a community. And it's the announcement of repentance and forgiveness of sins is, is less like you have the ability to make a personal shift and change. That's included. It's like that, but it's more. The, this announcement that Jesus is, is holding out is a lot more like the breaking news that we all endured about three years ago that there was a global pandemic. This thing is here, it's happening, and it is going to change you in one way or another. What are you going to do about it? That's what it's like when Jesus proclaims the kingdom. This thing is here, in and through me, and you can either come along and be a part of this thing, or you can choose to step away from it 
and resist it and rebel against it. But those are the only two ways. Matthew Bates, a biblical scholar, says, the gospel of Jesus in the gospels, the four biographies of his life, is about the kingdom of God, not first and foremost about your sins or my sins, but about how God's kingdom is arriving through Jesus' kingship. And he continues, you are witnesses of these things. I am going to send what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. The second part of that verse is a different sermon for a different day, but Jesus' disciples, in other words, are deputized to begin the proclamation of this announcement of the Jesus nation to every nation. And we can participate in that in big ways, small ways, local ways, international ways. You can participate by being a witness in and through your life, your attitudes, your actions, your behaviors, your relationships, to what Jesus is doing in the kingdom. One commentator on this passage helps us understand what it means to witness when he writes, the work and witness of Jesus is presented by Luke as unbounded by human borders of ethnicity, gender, age, culture, race, religion, or national and political allegiances. In other words, the Jesus nation is completely unlike any other national formation that the world has ever seen. Now, let's, let's start bringing this a little closer to home. What is the gospel? What is the good news? What does it mean to be saved? How do we take the Messiah out of the, tw- uh, out of the first century Palestine and bring it into the 21st century in Fresno. The gospel, what it means to be saved, is to include committing to a community under Jesus called to live the life of the future now. To be saved includes committing to a community under Jesus called to live the life of the future now. This kingdom that has come in Jesus and will arrive in its fullness in Jesus' return, what you and I are called to do is participate in a community that demonstrates what the future is going to be like and who you are going to be sharing eternity with by demonstrating that now in the present moment by the relationships that you cultivate. In other words, the gospel, the good news, is not an intellectual idea that you believe, but it's a Jesus-centered community into which you commit and participate and belong. The gospel is a community. And it's a community bound together by our commitment to the person and work of Jesus, not to our, our personal preferences or our political allegiances or our socioeconomic, socioeconomic background or our education or any or our ethnicity, any other thing other than Jesus himself is not what holds this community together. And we see in and through this story what it looks like for a community to live under Jesus and to embody the future in the present. 
There's a pattern here. We see it. The disciples gather together. In their disappointment, their disillusionment, their, their confusion, their questions, their, their, their wonderings, they're gathered together. They're committed to each other. And in and through that, somehow mysteriously, Jesus appears and their minds, opens their minds and their hearts so that they might grow in their understanding and their capacity to live in the kingdom and extend and expand the kingdom to others which they do by going. The way that we embody and demonstrate the the community of God is by going into our communities as a community. And what what has been on my heart for us and what this means is as we have one of our core values as a church over here on a quilt, as community is the center of our life, what it means for us, for North Fresno Church, to be a gospel people, people who proclaim the good news, is to be a community gathered publicly like this, but a community of communities, of smaller groups of people committed to growing in relationship with Jesus and each other for the sake of, for the purpose of the larger community a community of communities for the community. That is who we are. That is why we exist. That is what it means to proclaim the gospel. We gather, we grow, and we go. A community of communities for the community. That's what it means to be a part of this place. And the invitation for us in in big ways or small is to take a next step into that. And through lots of different transitions and things, some of the structures and mechanisms that we've had to connect people to one another have fallen away. But we are doubling down on trying to figure out how, what it looks like for us to embody this now moving forward. And the invitation to each one of you and all of us is to be a part of this community and then from this community be a part of smaller communities centered around Jesus and his story so that we might be formed to serve the world and to proclaim the way of Jesus. Now, by in being involved and invested in relationships that look like what heaven will look like. So, a quick way to do this, the easiest way to jump in is to sign up to serve at the Halloween carnival. I went to seminary to tell you that. (laughs) If you are in a life group, if you are in a small group, I want your group to commit in some way to serving this event in some way. This is what it means for us to be the church, is that we gather not just for ourselves, and that we grow in relationship to the extent that we go and that we serve. And the point of serving at the Halloween carnival, the point of even having the Halloween carnival in and of itself, is not to get more people from out there to come into here. 
If that happens, beautiful, wonderful. The reason why we have the Halloween carnival is to get the church out there, in the community, in relationship with people in this neighborhood and throughout the city. We want to get more of the church into more of the world because that's what it means to proclaim and live the gospel. And may it be so among us, North Fresno Church. May we proclaim the gospel as a community by being a part of smaller communities that serve our community. Amen.